BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Introduction of Gulliver's Travels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Introduction. The Publisher to the Reader, as given in the original edition. The author of these travels, Mr. Lemuel Gulliver, is my ancient and intimate friend. There is likewise some relation between us on the mother's side. About three years ago, Mr. Gulliver, growing weary of the concourse of curious people, coming to him at his house in Redriff, made a small purchase of land, with a convenient house near Newark in Nottinghamshire, his native country, where he now lives retired, yet in good esteem among his neighbours. Although Mr. Gulliver was born in Nottinghamshire, where his father dwelt, Yet I have heard him say his family come from Oxfordshire, to confirm which, I have observed in the churchyard at Banbury, in that county, several tombs and monuments of the Gullivers. Before he quitted Redriff, he left the custody of the following papers in my hands, with the liberty to dispose of them as I should think fit. I have carefully perused them three times. The style is very plain and simple, and the only fault I find is, that the author, after the manner of travellers, is a little too circumstantial. There is an air of truth apparent through the whole, and indeed the author was so distinguished for his veracity that it became a sort of proverb among his neighbours at Redriff, when any one affirmed a thing, to say, it was as true as if Mr. Gulliver had spoken it. By the advice of several worthy persons, to whom, with the author's permission, I communicated these papers, I now venture to send them into the world hoping they may be, at least for some time, a better entertainment to a young nobleman than the common scribbles of politics and party. This volume would have been at least twice as large, if I had not made bold to strike out innumerable passages relating to the winds and tides, as well as to the variations and bearings in the several voyages, together with the minute descriptions of the management of the ship in storms, 
in the style of sailors, likewise the account of longitudes and latitudes, wherein I have reason to apprehend that Mr. Gulliver may be a little dissatisfied. But I was resolved to fit the work as much as possible to the general capacity of readers. However, if my own ignorance in sea affairs shall have led me to commit some mistakes, I alone am answerable for them. And if any traveller hath a curiosity to see the whole work at large, as it comes from the hands of the author, I will be ready to gratify him. As for any further particulars relating to the author, the reader will receive satisfaction from the first page of the book. Richard Simpson A letter from Captain Gulliver to his cousin Simpson Written in the year 1727 I hope you will be ready to own publicly, whenever you shall be called to it, that by your great and frequent urgency you prevailed on me to publish a very loose and uncorrect account of my travels, with directions to hire some young gentleman of either university to put them in order and correct the style, as my cousin Dampier did, by my advice, in his book called A Voyage Around the World. But I do not remember I gave you power to consent that anything should be omitted, and much less that anything should be inserted, therefore, as to the latter, I do here renounce everything of that kind, particularly a paragraph about Her Majesty Queen Anne, of the most pious and glorious memory, although I did reverence and esteem her more than any of human species. But you, or your interpolator, ought to have considered that it was not my inclination. So it was not decent to praise any animal of our composition before my master Huynhem. And besides, the fact was altogether false, for, to my knowledge, being in England during some part of Her Majesty's reign, she did govern by a chief minister, nay, even by two successively, the first whereof was the Lord Goldefin, and the second the Lord of Oxford, so that you have made me say the thing that was not. Likewise, in the account of the Academy of Projectors, and several passages of my discourse to my master, Huynonhem, you have either omitted some material circumstances, or minced or changed them in such a manner, that I do hardly know my own work. When I formally hinted to you something of this in a letter, you were pleased to answer that you were afraid of giving offence, that people in power were very watchful over the press, and apt not only to interrupt, but to punish everything which looked like an innuendo, as I think you call it. But pray, how could that which I spoke so many years ago, and at about five thousand leagues distance, in another reign, be applied to any of the Yahoos who are now said to govern the herd, especially at a time when I little thought, or feared, the unhappiness of living under them? Have I not the most reason to complain? When I see these very Yahoos, carried by Huinonhems in a vehicle, as if they were brutes, and those the rational creatures, and indeed to avoid so monstrous and detestable a sight was one principal motive of my retirement hither. Thus much I thought proper to tell you in relation to yourself, and to the trust I reposed in you. I do, in the next place, complain of my own great want of judgment, in being prevailed upon by the entreaties and false reasoning of you and some others, very much against my own opinion, to suffer my travels to be published. Pray bring to your mind how often I desired you to consider, when you insisted on the motive of public good, that the Yahoos were a species of animal utterly incapable of amendment by precipice or example. And so it has proved. 
for, instead of seeing a full stop put to all abuses and corruptions, at least in this little island, as I had reason to expect, behold, after above six months' warning, I cannot learn that my book has produced one single effect according to my intentions. I desired you would let me know, by a letter, when party and faction were extinguished, judges learned and upright, pleaders honest and modest, with some tincture of common sense, and Smithfield blazing with pyramids of law-books, the young nobility's education entirely changed, the physicians banished, the female yahoos abounding in virtue, honour, truth, and good sense, courts and levies of great ministers thoroughly weeded and swept, wit, merit, and learning rewarded, all disgraces of the press in prose and verse condemned, to eat nothing but their own cotton, and quench their thirst with their own ink. These, and a thousand other reformations, I firmly counted upon by your encouragement, as indeed they were plainly deducible from the precipices delivered in my book. And it must be owned, that seven months were a sufficient time to correct every vice and folly to which Yahoos are subject, if their natures had been capable of the least disposition to virtue or wisdom. Yet, so far have you been from answering my expectation in any of your letters, that, on the contrary, you are loading our carrier every week with libels and keys and reflections and memoirs and second parts, wherein I see myself accused of reflecting upon great state folk, of degrading human nature, for so they still have the confidence to style it, and of abusing the female sex. I find likewise that the writers of those bundles are not agreed among themselves, for some of them will not allow me to be the author of my own travels, and others make me author of books to which I am wholly a stranger. I find likewise that your printer has been so careless as to confound the times and mistake the dates of my several voyages and returns, neither assigning the true year, nor the true month, nor day of the month, and I hear the original manuscript is all destroyed since the publication of my book. Neither have I any copy left. However, I have sent you some corrections, which you may insert, if ever there should be a second edition. And yet I cannot stand to them, but shall leave that matter to my judicious and candid readers to adjust it as they please. I hear some of our sea-yahoos find fault with my sea-language, as not proper in many parts, nor now in use. I cannot help it. In my first voyages, while I was young, I was instructed by the oldest mariners, and learned to speak as they did. But I have since found that the sea-yahoos are apt, like the land ones, to become new-fangled in their words, which the latter change every year, insomuch as I remember upon each return to my own country, their old dialect was so altered that I could hardly understand the new. And I observe, when any yahoo comes from London, out of curiosity, to visit me at my house, we neither of us are able to deliver our conceptions in a manner intelligible to the other. If the censure of the yahoos could any way affect me, I should have great reason to complain, that some of them are so bold as to think my book of travels a mere fiction out of my own brain, and have gone so far as to drop hints, that the Huinonhems and yahoos have no more existence than the inhabitants of Utopia. Indeed, I must confess, that as to the people of Lilliput, Bodingrag, for so the word should have been spelt, and not erroneously Brobdingnag, and Laputa, 
I have never yet heard any Yahoo so presumptuous as to dispute their being, or the facts I have related concerning them, because the truth immediately strikes every reader with conviction. And is there less probability in my account of the Huynanhems or Yahoos, when it is manifest, as to the latter, there are so many thousands even in this country, who only differ from their brother brutes in Huynanhem land, because they use a sort of jabber, and do not go naked? I wrote for their amendment, and not their approbation. The united praise of the whole race would be of less consequence to me than the neighing of those two degenerate Huynanhems I keep in my stable, because from these, degenerate as they are, I still improve in some virtues without any mixture of vice. Do these miserable animals presume to think that I am so degenerated as to defend my veracity? Yahoo as I am, it is well known through all Huynanhem land, that, by the instructions and example of my illustrious master, I was able, in the compass of two years, although I confess with the utmost difficulty, to remove that infernal habit of lying, shuffling, deceiving, and equivocating, so deeply rooted in the very soul of all my species, especially the Europeans. I have other complaints to make upon this vexatious occasion, but I forbear troubling myself or you any further. I must freely confess that since my last return, some corruptions of my Yahoo nature have revived in me by conversing with a few of your species, and particularly those of my own family, by an unavoidable necessity. Else I should never have attempted so absurd a project as that of reforming the Yahoo race in this kingdom. But I have now done with all such visionary schemes for ever. April 2nd, 1727 End of Introduction Part 1, Chapter 1 of Gulliver's Travels This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift Part 1 A Voyage to Lilliput Chapter 1 The author gives some account of himself and family. His first inducements to travel. He is shipwrecked and swims for his life. Gets safe on shore in the country of Lilliput. Is made a prisoner and carried up the country. My father had a small estate in Nottinghamshire. I was the third of five sons. He sent me to Emmanuel College in Cambridge at fourteen years old, where I resided three years, and applied myself close to my studies. But the charge of maintaining me, although I had a very scanty allowance, being too great for a narrow fortune, I was bound apprentice to Mr. James Bates, an eminent surgeon in London, with whom I continued four years. My father now and then sent me small sums of money. I laid them out in learning navigation, and other parts of the mathematics, useful to those who intend to travel, as I always believed it would be, some time or other, my fortune to do. When I left Mr. Bates, I went down to my father, where, by the assistance of him and my uncle John, and some other relations, I got forty pounds, and a promise of thirty pounds a year to maintain me at Leyden. There I studied physic two years and seven months, knowing it would be useful in long voyages. Soon after my return from Leyden, I was recommended by my good master, Mr. Bates, 
to be surgeon to the swallow, Captain Abraham Pannell, commander, with whom I continued three years and a half, making a voyage or two into the Levant, and some other parts. When I came back I resolved to settle in London, to which Mr. Bates, my master, encouraged me, and by him I was recommended to several patients. I took part of a small house in the old jury, and being advised to alter my condition, I married Mrs. Mary Burton, second daughter to Mr. Edmund Burton, hosier, in Newgate Street, with whom I received four hundred pounds for a portion. But my good master, Bates, dying in two years after, and I having few friends, my business began to fail, for my conscience would not suffer me to imitate the bad practice of too many among my brethren. Having therefore consulted with my wife, and some of my acquaintance, I determined to go again to sea. I was surgeon successively in two ships, and made several long voyages, for six years, to the East and West Indies, by which I got some addition to my fortune. My hours of leisure I spent in reading the best authors, ancient and modern, being always provided with a good number of books, and when I was ashore, in observing the manners and dispositions of the people, as well as learning their language, wherein I had a great facility by the strength of my memory. The last of these voyages, not proving very fortunate, I grew weary of the sea, and intended to stay at home with my wife and family. I removed from the old Jury to Fetter Lane, and from thence to Wapping, hoping to get business among the sailors, but it would not turn to account. After three years' expectation that things would mend, I accepted an advantageous offer from Captain William Pritchard, master of the Antelope, who was making a voyage to the South Sea. We set sail from Bristol, May 4th, 1699, and our voyage was at first very prosperous. It would not be proper, for some reasons, to trouble the reader with the particulars of our adventures in those seas. Let it suffice to inform him that in our passage from thence to the East Indies, we were driven by a violent storm to the north-west of Van Diem's land. By an observation, we found ourselves in the latitude of thirty degrees, two minutes south. Twelve of our crew were dead by immoderate labour and ill food. The rest were in very weak condition. On the 5th of November, which was the beginning of summer in those parts, the weather being very hazy, the seamen spied a rock within half a cable's length of the ship. But the wind was so strong that we were driven directly upon it, and immediately split. Six of the crew, of whom I was one, having let down the boat into the sea, made a shift to get clear of the ship and the rock. We rowed, by my computation, about three leagues, till we were able to work no longer, being already spent with labour while we were in the ship. We therefore trusted ourselves to the mercy of the waves, and in about half an hour the boat was overset by a sudden flurry from the north. What became of my companions in the boat, as well as those who escaped on the rock, or were left in the vessel, I cannot tell, but conclude they were all lost. For my own part, I swam as fortune directed me, and was pushed forward by wind and tide. I often let my legs drop, and could feel no bottom. But when I was almost gone, and able to struggle no longer, I found myself within my depth, and by this time the storm was much abated. The declivity was so small, that I walked near a mile before I got to the shore, which I conjectured was about eight o'clock in the evening. 
I then advanced forward near half a mile, but could not discover any sign of houses or inhabitants. At least I was in so weak a condition that I did not observe them. I was extremely tired, and with that, and the heat of the weather, and about half a pint of brandy that I drank as I left the ship, I found myself much inclined to sleep. I lay down on the grass, which was very short and soft, where I slept sounder than ever I remember to have done in my life, and, as I reckoned, about nine hours, for, when I awaked, it was just daylight. I attempted to rise, but was not able to stir, for, as I happened to lie on my back, I found my arms and legs were strongly fastened on each side to the ground, and my hair, which was long and thick, tied down in the same manner. I likewise felt several slender ligatures across my body, from my armpits to my thighs. I could only look upwards, the sun beginning to grow hot, and the light offended my eyes. I heard a confused noise about me, but in the posture I lay could see nothing except the sky. In a little time I felt something alive moving on my left leg, which, advancing gently forward over my breast, came almost up to my chin, when bending my eyes downwards as much as I could, I perceived it to be a human creature not six inches high, with a bow and arrow in his hands, and a quiver at his back. In the meantime I felt at least forty more of the same kind, as I conjectured, following the first. I was in the utmost astonishment, and roared so loud that they all ran back in a fright, and some of them, as I was afterwards told, were hurt with the falls they got by leaping from my sides upon the ground. However, they soon returned, and one of them, who ventured so far as to get a full sight of my face, lifting up his hands and eyes by way of admiration, cried out in a shrill but distinct voice, the others repeated the same words several times, but then I knew not what they meant. I lay all this while, as the reader may believe, in great uneasiness. At length, struggling to get loose, I had the fortune to break the strings, and wrench out the pegs that fastened my left arm to the ground. For, by lifting it up to my face, I discovered the methods they had taken to bind me, and at the same time, with a violent pull, which gave me excessive pain, I a little loosened the strings that tied down my hair on the left side, so that I was just able to turn my head about two inches. But the creatures ran off a second time, before I could seize them, whereupon there was a great shout in a very shrill accent, and after it ceased I heard one of them cry aloud, Toggle for knock! when, in an instant, I felt above a hundred arrows discharged on my left hand, which pricked me like so many needles. And besides, they shot another flight into the air, as we do bombs in Europe, whereof many, I suppose, fell on my body, though I felt them not, and some on my face, which I immediately covered with my left hand. When this shower of arrows was over, I fell a-groaning with grief and pain, and then again striving to get loose, they discharged another volley, larger than the first, and some of them attempted, with spears, to stick me in the side. But, by good luck, I had on a buff jerkin, which they could not pierce. I thought it the most prudent method to lie still, and my design was to continue so till night, when, my left hand being already loose, 
I could easily free myself. And as for the inhabitants, I had reason to believe I might be a match for the greatest army they could bring against me, if they were all of the same size with him that I saw. But fortune disposed otherwise of me. When the people observed I was quiet, they discharged no more arrows, but, by the noise I heard, I knew their numbers increased. And about four yards from me, over against my right ear, I heard a knocking for above an hour, like that of people at work, when turning my head that way, as well as the pegs and strings would permit me, I saw a stage erected about a foot and a half from the ground, capable of holding four of the inhabitants, with two or three ladders to mount it, from whence one of them, who seemed to be a person of quality, made me a long speech, whereof I understood not one syllable. But I should have mentioned, that before the principal person began his oration, he cried out three times, these words, and the former, were afterwards repeated and explained to me. Whereupon, immediately, about fifty of the inhabitants came, and cut the strings that fastened the left side of my head, which gave me the liberty of turning it to the right, and of observing the person and gesture of him that was to speak. He appeared to be of a middle age, and taller than any of the other three who attended him whereof one was a page that held up his train, and seemed to be somewhat longer than my middle finger. The other two stood one on each side to support him. He acted every part of an orator, and I could observe many periods of threatenings, and others of promises, pity, and kindness. I answered in a few words, but in the most submissive manner, lifting up my left hand and both my eyes to the sun, as calling him for a witness and being almost famished with hunger, having not eaten a morsel for some hours before I left the ship, I found the demands of nature so strong upon me, that I could not forbear showing my impatience, perhaps against the strict rules of decency, by putting my finger frequently to my mouth, to signify that I wanted food. The Hurgo, for so they call a great lord, as I afterwards learnt, understood me very well. He descended from the stage, and commanded that several ladders should be applied to my sides, on which, above a hundred of the inhabitants mounted, and walked towards my mouth, laden with baskets full of meat, which had been provided and sent thither by the king's orders, upon the first intelligence he received of me. I observed there was the flesh of several animals, but could not distinguish them by their taste. There were shoulders, legs, and loins, shaped like those of mutton, and very well dressed, but smaller than the wings of a lark. I ate them by two or three at a mouthful, and took three loaves at a time, about the bigness of musket-balls. They supplied me as fast as they could, showing a thousand marks of wonder and astonishment at my bulk and appetite. I then made another sign that I wanted drink. They found by my eating that a small quantity would not suffice me, and being a most ingenious people, they slung up, with great dexterity, one of their largest hogsheads, then rolled it towards my hand, and beat out the top. I drank it off at a draught, which I might well do, for it did not hold half a pint, and tasted like a small wine of burgundy, but much more delicious. They brought me a second hogshead, which I drank in the same manner, and made signs for more, but they had none to give me. 
When I had performed these wonders, they shouted for joy, and danced upon my breast, repeating several times as they did at first, Hekinal Dickal! They made me a sign that I should throw down the two hogsheads, but first warning the people below to stand out the way, crying aloud, Borash Mevelar! And when they saw the vessels in the air, there was a universal shout of, Hekinal Dickal! I confess, I was often tempted, while they were passing backwards and forwards on my body, to seize forty or fifty of the first that came in my reach, and dash them against the ground. But the remembrance of what I had felt, which probably might not be the worst they could do, and the promise of honour I made them, for so I interpreted my submissive behaviour, soon drove out these imaginations. Besides, I now consider myself as bound by the laws of hospitality, to a people who had treated me with so much expense and magnificence. However, in my thoughts, I could not sufficiently wonder at the intrepidity of these diminutive mortals, who durst venture to mount and walk upon my body, while one of my hands was at liberty, without trembling at the very sight of so prodigious a creature as I must appear to them. After some time, when they observed that I made no more demands for meat, there appeared before me a person of high rank from his imperial majesty. His Excellency, having mounted on the small of my right leg, advanced forwards up to my face, with about a dozen of his retinue, and, producing his credentials under the signet royal, which he applied close to my eyes, spoke about ten minutes without any signs of anger, but with a kind of determinate resolution, often pointing forwards, which, as I afterwards found, was towards the capital city, about half a mile distance, whither it was agreed by his majesty and council that I must be conveyed. I answered in few words, but to no purpose, and made a sign with my hand that was loose, putting it to the other, but over his excellency's head, for fear of hurting him or his train, and then to my own head and body, to signify that I desired my liberty. It appeared that he understood me well enough, for he shook his head by way of disapprobation, and held his hand in a posture to show that I must be carried as a prisoner. However, he made other signs to let me understand that I should have meat and drink enough, and very good treatment. Whereupon I once more thought of attempting to break my bonds, but again, when I felt the smart of their arrows upon my face and hands, which were all in blisters, and many of the darts still sticking in them, and observing likewise that the number of my enemies increased, I gave tokens to let them know that they might do with me as they pleased. Upon this, the Hergo and his train withdrew, with much civility and cheerful countenances. Soon after I heard a general shout, with frequent repetitions of the words, Pepelom Selan! And I felt great numbers of people on my left side, relaxing the cords to such a degree, that I was able to turn upon my right, and to ease myself with making water which I very plentifully did, to the great astonishment of the people, who, conjecturing by my motion what I was going to do, immediately opened to the right and left on that side, to avoid the torrent which fell with such noise and violence from me. But before this they had dubbed my face and both my hands with a sort of ointment, very pleasant to the smell, which, in a few minutes, removed all the smart of their arrows. 
These circumstances, added to the refreshment I had received by the victuals and drink, which were very nourishing, disposed me to sleep. I slept about eight hours, as I was afterwards assured, and it was no wonder, for the physicians, by the emperor's orders, had mingled a sleepy potion into the hogsheads of wine. It seems that upon the first moment I was discovered sleeping on the ground, after my landing, the emperor had early notice of it by an express, and determined in council that I should be tied in the manner I have related, which was done in the night while I slept, that plenty of meat and drink should be sent to me, and a machine prepared to carry me to the capital city. This resolution may appear very bold and dangerous, and I am confident would not be imitated by any prince in Europe on the like occasion. However, in my opinion, it was extremely prudent, as well as generous, for, supposing these people had endeavoured to kill me with their spears and arrows, while I was asleep, I should certainly have awaked with the first sense of smart, which might so far have roused my rage and strength, as to enable me to break the strings wherewith I was tied. After which, as they were not able to make resistance, so they could expect no mercy. These people are most excellent mathematicians, and arrive to a great perfection in mechanics. By the countenance and encouragement of the emperor, who is a renowned patron of learning, this prince has several machines fixed, on wheels, for the carriage of trees and other great weights. He often builds his largest men of war, whereof some are nine feet long, in the woods where the timber grows, and has them carried on these engines three or four hundred yards to the sea. Five hundred carpenters and engineers were immediately set at work, to prepare the greatest engine they had. It was a frame of wood, raised three inches from the ground, about seven feet long, and four wide, moving upon twenty-two wheels. The shout I heard was upon the arrival of this engine, which, it seems, set out in four hours after my landing. It was brought parallel to me as I lay, but the principal difficulty was to raise and place me in this vehicle. Eighty poles, each of one foot high, were erected for this purpose, and very strong cords, of the bigness of pack-thread, were fastened by hooks to many bandages, which the workmen had girt round my neck, my hands, my body, and my legs. Nine hundred of the strongest men were employed to draw up these cords, by many pulleys fastened on the poles, and thus, in less than three hours, I was raised and slung into the engine, and there tied fast. All this I was told, for, while the operation was performing, I lay in a profound sleep, by the force of that soporiferous medicine infused into my liquor. Fifteen hundred of the Emperor's largest horses, each about four inches and a half high, were employed to draw me towards the metropolis, which, as I said, was half a mile distant. About four hours after we began our journey, I awaked by a very ridiculous accident, for the carriage being stopped a while, to adjust something that was out of order, two or three of the young natives had the curiosity to see how I looked when I was asleep. They climbed up into the engine, and advancing very softly to my face, one of them, an officer in the guards, put the sharp end of his half-pike a good way up into my left nostril, 
which tickled my nose like a straw, and made me sneeze violently, whereupon they stole off unperceived, and it was three weeks before I knew the cause of my waking so suddenly. We made a long march the remaining part of the day, and rested at night with the five hundred guards on each side of me, half with torches, and half with bow and arrows, ready to shoot me if I should offer to stir. The next morning, at sunrise, we continued our march, and arrived within two hundred yards of the city gates about noon. The emperor, and all his court, came out to meet us. But his great officers would by no means suffer his majesty to endanger his position by mounting on to my body. At the place where the carriage stopped, there stood an ancient temple, esteemed to be the largest in the whole kingdom, which, having been polluted some years before by an unnatural murder, was, according to the zeal of those people, looked upon as profane, and therefore had been applied to common use, and all the ornaments and furniture carried away. In this edifice it was determined I should lodge. The great gate fronting to the north was about four feet high and almost two feet wide, through which I could easily creep. On each side of the gate was a small window, not above six inches from the ground. Into that on the left side the king's smith conveyed fourscore and eleven chains, like those that hang to a lady's watch in Europe, and almost as large, which were locked to my left leg with six and thirty padlocks. Over against this temple, on the other side of the great highway, at twenty feet distance, there was a turret at least five feet high. Here the emperor ascended, with many principal lords of his court, to have an opportunity of viewing me, as I was told, for I could not see them. It was reckoned that above a hundred thousand inhabitants came out of the town upon the same errand, and in spite of my guards I believe there could not be fewer than ten thousand at several times, who mounted my body by the help of ladders. But a proclamation was soon issued to forbid it upon pain of death. When the workmen found it was impossible for me to break loose, they cut all the strings that bound me, whereupon I rose up, with as melancholy a disposition as ever I had in my life. But the noise and astonishment of the people at seeing me rise and walk are not to be expressed. The chains that held my left leg were about two yards long, and gave me not only the liberty of walking backwards and forwards in a semicircle, but, being fixed within four inches of the gate, allowed me to creep in and light my full length in the temple. End of chapter 1, part 1The Emperor of Lilliput, attended by several of the nobility, comes to see the author in his confinement. The Emperor's person and habits described. Learned men appointed to teach the author their language. He gains favour by his mild disposition. His pockets are searched, and his sword and pistols taken from him. When I found myself on my feet, I looked about me, and must confess I never beheld a more entertaining prospect. The country around appeared like a continued garden, and the enclosed fields, which were generally forty feet square, resembled so many beds of flowers. These fields were intermingled with woods of half a stang, and the tallest trees, as I could judge, appeared to be seven feet high. I viewed the town on my left hand, 
which looked like the painted scene of a city in a theatre. I had been for some hours extremely pressed by the necessities of nature, which was no wonder, it being almost two days since I had last disburdened myself. I was under great difficulties between urgency and shame. The best expedient I could think of was to creep into my house, which I accordingly did, and shutting the gate after me, I went as far as the length of my chain would suffer, and discharged my body of that uneasy load. But this was the only time I was ever guilty of so uncleanly an action, for which I cannot but hope the candid reader will give some allowance, after he has maturely and impartially considered my case and the distress I was in. From this time, my constant practice was, as soon as I rose, to perform that business in open air, at the full extent of my chain, and due care was taken every morning before company came, that the offensive matter should be carried off in wheelbarrows, by two servants appointed for that purpose. I would not have dwelt so long upon a circumstance that, perhaps at first sight, may appear not very momentous, if I had not thought it necessary to justify my character in point of cleanliness, to the world, which, I am told, some of my maligners have been pleased, upon this and other occasions, to call in question. When this adventure was at an end, I came back out of my house, having occasion for fresh air. The Emperor was already descended from the tower, and advancing on horseback towards me, which had liked to have cost him dear, for the beast, though very well trained, yet wholly unused to such a sight, which appeared as if a mountain moved before him, reared up on his hind feet. But that prince, who is an excellent horseman, kept his seat, till his attendants ran in, and held the bridle, while his majesty had time to dismount. When he alighted, he surveyed me round with great admiration, but kept beyond the length of my chain. He ordered his cooks and butlers, who were already prepared, to give me victuals and drink, which they pushed forward in a sort of vehicle, upon wheels, till I could reach them. I took these vehicles, and soon emptied them all. Twenty of them were filled with meat, and ten with liqueur. Each of the former afforded me two or three good mouthfuls, and I emptied the liqueur of ten vessels, which was contained in earthen vials, into one vehicle, drinking it off at a draught, and so I did with the rest. The empress, and young princes of the blood of both sexes, attended by many ladies, sat at some distance in their chairs. But upon the accident that happened to the emperor's horse, they alighted, and came near his person, which I am now going to describe. He is taller by almost the breadth of my nail than any of his court, which alone is enough to strike an awe into the beholders. His features are strong and masculine, with an Austrian lip and arched nose. His complexion olive, his countenance erect, his body and limbs well proportioned, all his motions graceful, and his deportment majestic. He was then past his prime, being twenty-eight years and three-quarters old, of which he had reigned about seven in great felicity, and generally victorious. For the better convenience of beholding him, I lay on my side, so that my face was parallel to his, and he stood but three yards off. However, I have had him since many times in my hand, and therefore cannot be deceived in the description. His dress was very plain and simple, and the fashion of it between the Asiatic and the European. But he had on his head a light helmet of gold, 
adorned with jewels and a plume on the crest. He held his sword drawn in his hand to defend himself, if I should happen to break loose. It was almost three inches long, the hilt and scabbard were gold enriched with diamonds. His voice was shrill, but very clear and articulate, and I could distinctly hear it when I stood up. The ladies and courtiers were all magnificently clad, so that the spot they stood upon seemed to resemble a petticoat spread upon the ground, embroidered with figures of gold and silver. His imperial majesty spoke often to me, and I returned answers, but neither of us could understand a syllable. There were several of his priests and lawyers present, as I conjectured by their habits, who were commanded to address themselves to me, and I spoke to them in many languages, as I had the least smattering of, which were high and low Dutch, Latin, French, Spanish, Italian, and lingu franca, but all to no purpose. After about two hours the court retired, and I was left with a strong guard, to prevent the impertinence, and probably the malice of the rabble, who were very impatient to crowd about me as near as they durst, and some of them had the impudence to shoot their arrows at me, as I sat on the ground by the door of my house, whereof one very narrowly missed my left eye. But the colonel ordered six of the ringleaders to be seized, and thought no punishment so proper as to deliver them bound into my hands, which some of his soldiers accordingly did, pushing them forward with the butt-ends of their pikes into my reach. I took them in my right hand, put five of them into my coat-pocket, and as to the sixth, I made a countenance as if I would eat him alive. The poor man squalled terribly, and the colonel and his officers were in much pain, especially when they saw me take out my penknife. But I soon put them out of fear, for, looking mildly, and immediately cutting the strings he was bound with, I set him gently on the ground, and away he ran. I treated the rest in the same manner, taking them one by one out of my pocket, and I observed both the soldiers and people were highly delighted at this mark of my clemency, which was represented very much to my advantage at court. Towards night I got with some difficulty into my house, where I lay on the ground, and continued to do so about a fortnight, during which time the Emperor gave orders to have a bed prepared for me. Six hundred beds of the common measure were brought in carriages, and worked up in my house. A hundred and fifty of their beds sewn together made up the breadth and length, and these were four double, which, however, kept me, but very indifferently, from the hardness of the floor, that was of smooth stone. By the same computation they provided me with sheets, blankets, and coverlets, tolerable enough for one who had been so long inured to hardships. As the news of my arrival spread through the kingdom, it brought prodigious numbers of rich, idle, and curious people to see me, so that the villages were almost emptied, and a great neglect of tillage and household affairs must have ensued, if his imperial majesty had not provided, by several proclamations and orders of state, against this inconveniency. He directed that those who had already beheld me should return home, and not presume to come within fifty yards of my house without license from the court, whereby the secretaries of state got considerable fees. In the meantime the emperor held frequent councils, to debate what course should be taken with me, and I was afterwards assured by a particular friend, a person of great quality, who was as much in the secret as any, that the court was under many difficulties concerning me. 
They apprehended my breaking loose, that my diet would be very expensive, and might cause a famine. Sometimes they determined to starve me, or at least to shoot me in the face and hands with poisoned arrows, which would soon dispatch me. But again they considered that the stench of so large a carcass might produce a plague in the metropolis, and probably spread through the whole kingdom. In the midst of these consultations, several officers of the army went to the door of the great council chamber, and two of them being admitted, gave an account of my behaviour to the six criminals above mentioned, which made so favourable an impression in the breast of his majesty, and the whole board, in my behalf, that an imperial commission was issued out, obliging all the villages nine hundred yards round the city, to deliver in every morning six beeves, forty sheep, and other victuals for my sustenance, together with a proportional quantity of bread and wine and other liqueurs, for the due payment of which his majesty gave assignments upon his treasury, for this prince lives chiefly upon his own demences, seldom, except upon great occasions, raising any subsidies upon his subjects, who are bound to attend him in his wars at their own expense. An establishment was also made of six hundred persons to be my domestics, who had board wages allowed for their maintenance, and tents built for them very conveniently on each side of my door. It was likewise ordered that three hundred tailors should make me a suit of clothes, after the fashion of the country, that six of his majesty's greatest scholars should be employed to instruct me in their language, and lastly, that the emperor's horses, and those of the nobility and troops of the guards, should be frequently exercised in my sight, to accustom themselves to me. All these orders were duly put in execution, and in about three weeks I made a great progress in learning their language, during which time the emperor frequently honoured me with his visits, and was pleased to assist my masters in teaching me. We began already to converse together in some sort, and the first words I learnt were to express my desire, that he would please give me my liberty, which I every day repeated on my knees. His answer, as I could comprehend it, was, that this must be the work of time, not to be thought on without the advice of his counsel, and that first I must, Lumos Kelmin Peso Desmarlon Eposo, that is, swear a peace with him and his kingdom. However, that I should be used with all kindness. And he advised me to acquire, by my patience and discreet behaviour, the good opinion of himself and his subjects. He desired I would not take it ill if he gave orders to certain proper officers to search me, for probably I might carry about me several weapons, which must needs be dangerous things, if they answered the bulk of so prodigious a person. I said, his majesty should be satisfied, for I was ready to strip myself, and turn my pockets before him. This I delivered part in words, and part in signs. He replied, that by the laws of the kingdom I must be searched by two of his officers, that he knew this could not be done without my consent and assistance, and he had so good an opinion of my generosity and justice, as to trust their persons in my hands, that whatever they took from me, should be returned when I left the country, or paid for at the rate which I would set upon them. I took up the two officers in my hands, put them first in my coat pockets, and then into every other pocket about me, except my two fobs, and another secret pocket, which I had no mind should be searched, 
wherein I had some little necessities that were of no consequence to any but myself. In one of my fobs there was a silver watch, and in the other a small quantity of gold in a purse. These gentlemen, having pen, ink, and paper about them, made an exact inventory of everything they saw, and when they had done, desired I would set them down, that they might deliver it to the emperor. This inventory I afterwards translated into English, and is, word for word, as follows. Imprimis. In the right coat-pocket of the great man-mountain, for so I interpret the words Quinbus Flesterin, after the strictest search, we found only one great piece of coarse cloth, large enough to be a foot-cloth for your majesty's chief room of state. In the left pocket we saw a huge silver chest, with a cover of the same metal, which we, the searchers, were not able to lift. We desired it should be opened, and one of us stepping into it, found himself up to the mid-leg, in a sort of dust, some part whereof flying up to our faces, set us both a-sneezing for several times together. In his right waistcoat pocket we found a prodigious bundle of white thin substances, folded one over another, about the bigness of three men, tied with a strong cable, and marked with black figures, which we humbly conceived to be writings, every letter almost half as large as the palm of our hands. In the left there was a sort of engine, from the back of which were extended twenty long poles, resembling the palisados before your majesty's court, wherewith we conjectured the man-mounting combs his head, for we did not always trouble him with questions, because we found it a great difficulty to make him understand us. In the large pocket, on the right side of his middle cover, so I translated the word ranfulo, by which they meant my breeches, we saw a hollow pillow of iron, about the length of a man, fastened to a strong piece of timber, larger than the pillar, and upon one side of the pillar were huge pieces of iron sticking out, cut into strange figures, which we know not what to make of. In the left pocket, another engine of the same kind, in the smaller pocket on the right side, were several round flat pieces of white and red metal, of different bulk. Some of the white, which seemed to be silver, were so large and heavy that my comrade and I could hardly lift them. In the left pocket were two black pillars irregularly shaped. We could not, with difficulty, reach the top of them, as we stood at the bottom of his pocket. One of them was covered, and seemed all of a piece, but at the upper end of the other there appeared a white round substance, about twice the bigness of our heads. Within each of these were enclosed a prodigious plate of steel, which, by our orders, we obliged him to show us, because we apprehended they might be dangerous engines. He took them out of their cases, and told us, that in his own country his practice was to shave his beard with one of these, and cut his meat with the other. There were two pockets which we could not enter. These he called his fobs. They were two large slits cut into the top of his middle cover, but squeezed closed by the pressure of his belly. Out of the right fob hung a great silver chain, with a wonderful kind of engine at the bottom. We directed him to draw out whatever was at the end of that chain, which appeared to be a globe, half silver and half of some transparent metal, for, on the transparent side, we saw certain strange figures circularly drawn, and thought we could touch them. 
till we found our figures stopped by the lucid substance. He put this engine into our ears, which made an incessant noise, like that of a water-mill, and we conjecture it is either some unknown animal, or the god that he worships. But we are more inclined to the latter opinion, because he assured us, if we understood him right, for he expressed himself very imperfectly, that he seldom did anything without consulting it. He called it his oracle, and said, it pointed out the time for every action of his life. From the left fob he took out a net almost large enough for a fisherman, but contrived to open and shut like a purse, and served him for the same use. We found therein several massy pieces of yellow metal, which, if they be real gold, must be of immense value. Having thus, in obedience to your majesty's commands, diligently searched all his pockets, we observed a girdle about his waist made of the hide of some prodigious animal, from which, on the left side, hung a sword of the length of five men, and on the right, a bag or pouch divided into two cells, each cell capable of holding three of your majesty's subjects. In each of these cells were several globes, or balls, of a most ponderous metal, about the bigness of our heads, and requiring a strong hand to lift them. The other cell contained a heap of black grains, but of no great bulk or weight, for we could hold above fifty of them in the palm of our hands. This is an exact inventory of what we found about the body of the man-mountain, who used us with great civility, and due respect to your majesty's commission. Signed and sealed on the fourth day of the eighty-ninth moon of your majesty's auspicious reign. Clefrin Freelock, Marcy Freelock. When this inventory was read over to the emperor, he directed me, although in very gentle terms, to deliver up several particulars. He first called for my scimitar, which I took out, scabbard and all. In the meantime, he ordered three thousand of his choicest troops, who then attended him, to surround me at a distance, with their bows and arrows just ready to discharge. But I did not observe it, for mine eyes were wholly fixed upon his majesty. He then desired me to draw my scimitar, which, although it had got some rust by the sea-water, was, in most parts, exceedingly bright. I did so, and immediately all the troops gave a shout between terror and surprise. For the sun shone clear, and the reflection dazzled their eyes. As I waved the scimitar to and fro in my hand, His Majesty, who is a most magnanimous prince, was less daunted than I could expect. He ordered me to return it into the scabbard, and cast it on the ground as gently as I could, about six feet from the end of my chain. The next thing he demanded was of the hollow iron pillars, by which he meant my pocket-pistols. I drew it out, and at his desire, as well as I could, expressed to him the use of it, and charging it only with powder, which, by the closeness of my pouch, happened to escape wetting in the sea, an inconvenience against which all prudent mariners take special care to provide. I first cautioned the emperor not to be afraid, and then I let it off in the air. The astonishment here was much greater than at the sight of my scimitar. Hundreds fell down as if they had been struck dead, and even the emperor, although he stood his ground, could not recover himself for some time. I delivered up both my pistols in the same manner as I had done my scimitar, and then my pouch of powder and bullets, begging him that the former might be kept from fire 
for it would kindle with the smallest spark, and blow up his imperial palace into the air. I likewise delivered up my watch, which the emperor was very curious to see, and commanded two of his tallest yeoman guards to bear it on a pole upon their shoulders, as draymen in England do a barrel of ale. He was amazed at the continual noise it made, and the motion of the minute-hand, which he could easily discern, for their sight is much more acute than ours. He asked the opinions of his learned men about it, which were various and remote, as the reader may well imagine without my repeating, although, indeed, I could not very perfectly understand them. I then gave up my silver and copper money, my purse, with nine large pieces of gold, and some smaller ones, my knife and razor, my comb and silver snuff-box, my handkerchief and journal-book. My scimitar, pistols, and pouch were conveyed in carriages to his majesty's stores, but the rest of my goods were returned to me. I had, as I before observed, one private pocket, which escaped their search, wherein there was a pair of spectacles, which I sometimes used for the weakness of mine eyes, a pocket perspective, and some other little conveniences, which, being of no consequence to the emperor, I did not think myself bound in honour to discover, and I apprehended they might be lost or spoiled if I ventured them out of my possession. End of chapter 2, part 1Part One, Chapter Three, of Gulliver's Travels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Part One, A Voyage to Lilliput, Chapter Three. The author diverts the emperor and his nobility of both sexes in a very uncommon manner. The diversions of the court of Lilliput described, the author has his liberty granted him upon certain conditions. My gentleness and good behaviour had gained so far on the emperor and his court, and indeed upon the army and people in general, that I began to conceive hopes of getting my liberty in a short time. I took all possible methods to cultivate this favourable disposition. The natives came, by degrees, to be less apprehensive of any danger from me. I would sometimes lie down, and let five or six of them dance on my hand, and at last the boys and girls would venture to come and play hide-and-seek in my hair. I had now made a good progress in understanding and speaking the language. The emperor had a mind one day to entertain me with several of the country shows wherein they exceed all nations I have known, both for dexterity and magnificence. I was diverted with none so much as that of the rope-dancers, performed upon a slender white thread, extended about two feet and twelve inches from the ground, upon which I shall desire liberty with the reader's patience, to enlarge a little. This diversion is only practised by those persons who are candidates for great employments, and high favour at court. They are trained in this art from their youth, and are not always of noble birth, or liberal education. When a great office is vacant, either by death or disgrace, which often happens, five or six of those candidates petition the emperor to entertain his majesty and the court with a dance on the rope, 
and whoever jumps the highest without falling succeeds in the office. Very often the chief ministers themselves are commanded to show their skill, and to convince the emperor that they have not lost their faculty. Filmnap, the treasurer, is allowed to cut a caper on the straight rope, at least an inch higher than any other lord in the whole empire. I have seen him do the somersault several times together, upon a trencher fixed on a rope which is no thicker than a common pack-thread in England. My friend, Reldressel, principal secretary for private affairs, is, in my opinion, if I am not partial, the second after the treasurer. The rest of the great officers are much upon a par. These diversions are often attended with fatal accidents, whereof great numbers are on record. I myself have seen two or three candidates break a limb. But the danger is much greater when the ministers themselves are commanded to show their dexterity. For, by contending to excel themselves and their fellows, they strain so far that there is hardly one of them who has not received a fall, and some of them two or three. I was assured that, a year or two before my arrival, Filmnap would infallibly have broke his neck, if one of the king's cushions, that accidentally lay on the ground, had not weakened the force of his fall. There is likewise another diversion, which is only shown before the emperor and empress, and first minister, upon particular occasions. The emperor lays on the table three fine silken threads, of six inches long. One is blue, the other red, and the third green. These threads are proposed as prizes for those persons whom the emperor has in mind to distinguish by a peculiar mark of his favour. The ceremony is performed in his majesty's great chamber of state, where the candidates are to undergo a trial of dexterity very different from the former, and such as I have not observed the least resemblance of in any other country of the new or old world. The emperor holds a stick in his hands, both ends parallel to the horizon, while the candidates advancing, one by one, sometimes leap over the stick, sometimes creep under it, backward and forward several times, according as the stick is advanced or depressed. Sometimes the emperor holds one end of the stick, and his first minister the other. Sometimes the minister has it entirely to himself. Whoever performs his part with most agility, and holds out the longest in leaping and creeping, is rewarded with the blue-coloured silk. The red is given to the next, and the green to the third, which they all wear girt twice around the middle, and you see few great persons about this court who are not adorned with one of these girdles. The horses of the army, and those of the royal stables, having been daily led before me, were no longer shy, but would come up to my very feet without starting. The riders would leap them over my hand as I held it on the ground, and one of the emperor's huntsmen, upon a larger corsair, took my foot, shoe and all, which was indeed a prodigious leap. I had the good fortune to divert the emperor one day, after a very extraordinary manner. I desired he would order several sticks of two feet high, and the thickness of an ordinary cane to be brought to me, whereupon his majesty commanded the master of his woods to give directions accordingly, and the next morning six woodmen arrived, with as many carriages, drawn by eight horses to each. I took nine of these sticks, and fixing them firmly in the ground, in a quadrangular figure, two feet and a half square, I took four other sticks, and tied them parallel at each corner, about two feet from the ground. 
Then I fastened my handkerchief to the nine sticks that stood erect, and extended it on all sides, till it was tight as the top of a drum. And the four parallel sticks, rising about five inches higher than the handkerchief, served as ledges on each side. When I had finished my work, I desired the emperor to let a troop of his best horses, twenty-four in number, come and exercise upon this plain. His majesty approved of the proposal, and I took them up, one by one, in my hands, ready mounted and armed, with the proper officers to exercise them. As soon as they got into order, they divided into two parties, performed mock skirmishes, discharged blunt arrows, drew their swords, fled and pursued, attacked and retired, and, in short, discovered the best military discipline I ever beheld. The parallel sticks secured them and their horses from falling over the stage, and the emperor was so much delighted that he ordered this entertainment to be repeated several days, and once was pleased to be lifted up and give the word of command, and with great difficulty persuaded even the empress herself to let me hold her in her close chair within two yards of the stage, when she was able to take a full view of the whole performance. It was my good fortune that no ill accident happened in these entertainments. Only once a fiery horse, that belonged to one of the captains, pawing with his hoof, struck a hole in my handkerchief, and his foot slipping, he overthrew his rider and himself. But I immediately relieved them both, and covering the hole with one hand, I set down the troop with the other, in the same manner as I took them up. The horse that fell was strained in the left shoulder, but the rider got no hurt, and I repaired my handkerchief as well as I could. However, I would not trust to the strength of it any more, in such dangerous enterprises. About two or three days before I was set at liberty, as I was entertaining the court with this kind of feat, there arrived an express to inform His Majesty that some of his subjects, riding near the place where I was first taken up, had seen a great black substance lying on the ground, very oddly shaped, extending its edges round, as wide as his majesty's bedchamber, and rising up in the middle as high as a man. That it was no living creature, as they at first apprehended, for it lay on the grass without motion, and some of them had walked round it several times. That, by mounting upon each other's shoulders, they had got to the top, which was flat and even, and stamping upon it, they found that it was hollow within. That they humbly conceived it might be something belonging to the man-mountain, and if his majesty pleased, they would undertake to bring it with only five horses. I presently knew what they meant, and was glad at heart to receive this intelligence. It seems, upon my first reaching the shore after our shipwreck, I was in such confusion, that before I came to the place where I went to sleep, my hat— which I had fastened with a string to my head while I was rowing, and had stuck on all the time I was swimming, fell off after I came to land. The string, as I conjecture, breaking by some accident which I never observed, but thought my hat to be lost at sea. I entreated His Imperial Majesty to give orders it might be brought to me as soon as possible, describing to him the use and nature of it, and the next day his wagoners arrived with it, but not in very good condition. They had bored two holes in the brim, within an inch and a half of the edge, and fastened two hooks in the holes. These hooks were tied by a long cord to the harness, and thus my hat was dragged along for above half an English mile. 
but the ground in that country being extremely smooth and level it received less damage than i expected two days after this adventure the emperor having ordered that part of his army which quarters in and about his metropolis to be in readiness took a fancy of diverting himself in a very singular manner he desired i would stand like a colossus with my legs as far asunder as i conveniently could he then commanded his general who was an old experienced leader and a great patron of mine to draw up the troops in close order and march them under me the foot by twenty-four abreast and the horse by sixteen with drums beating colours flying and pikes advanced this body consisted of three thousand foot and a thousand horse his majesty gave orders upon pain of death that every soldier in his march should observe the strictest decency with regard to my person which however could not prevent some of the younger officers from turning up their eyes as they passed under me and to confess the truth my breeches were at the time in so ill a condition that they afforded some opportunities for laughter and admiration i had sent so many memorials and petitions for my liberty that his majesty at length mentioned the matter first in the cabinet and then in a full council where it was opposed by none except skyrish bolgolom who was pleased without any provocation to be my mortal enemy but it was carried against him by the whole board and confirmed by the emperor that minister was galbert or admiral of the realm very much in his majesty's confidence and a person well versed in affairs but of a morose and sour complexion however he was at length persuaded to comply but prevailed that the articles and conditions upon which i should be set free and to which i must swear should be drawn up by himself these articles were brought to me by skyrish bogolam in person attended by two under-secretaries and several persons of distinction after they were read i was demanded to swear to the performance of them first in the manner of my own country and afterwards in the method prescribed by their laws which was to hold my right foot in my left hand and to place the middle finger of my right hand on the crown of my head and my thumb on the tip of my right ear but because the reader may be curious to have some idea of the style and manner of expression peculiar to that people as well as to know the article upon which i received my liberty i have made a translation of the whole instrument word for word near as i was able which i here offer to the public golbasto momarem evlam gurdilo shefin mali aligu most mighty emperor of lilliput delight and terror of the universe whose dominions extend five thousand blustrongs about twelve miles in circumference to the extremities of the globe monarch of all monarchs taller than the sons of men whose feet press down to the centre and whose head strikes against the sun at whose nod the princes of the earth shake their knees pleasant as the spring comfortable as the summer fruitful as autumn dreadful as winter his most sublime majesty proposes to the man-mountain lately arrived at our celestial dominions the following articles which by a solemn oath he shall be obliged to perform first the man-mountain shall not depart from our dominions without our license under our great seal second 
he shall not presume to come into our metropolis without our express order, at which time the inhabitants shall have two hours' warning to keep within doors. Third, the man-mountain shall confine his walks to our principal high-roads, and not offer to walk, or lie down, in a meadow or field of corn. Fourth, as he walks the said roads, he shall take the utmost care not to trample upon the bodies of any of our loving subjects, their horses or carriages, nor to take any of our subjects into his hands without their own consent. Fifth, if an express requires extraordinary dispatch, the man-mountain shall be obliged to carry, in his pocket, the messenger and horse a six days' journey, once in every moon, and return the said messenger back, if so required, safe to our imperial presence. Sixth, he shall be our ally against our enemies in the island of Blefusca, and do his utmost to destroy their fleet, which is now preparing to invade us. Seventh, that the said man-mountain shall, at his times of leisure, be aiding and assisting to our workmen in helping to raise certain great stones, towards covering the wall of the principal park and other of our royal buildings. Eighth, that the said man-mountain shall, in two moons' time, deliver an exact survey of the circumference of our dominions, by a computation of his own paces round the coast. Lastly, that, upon his solemn oath to observe all the above articles, the said man-mountain shall have a daily allowance of meat and drink, sufficient for the support of one thousand seven hundred and twenty-four of our subjects, with free access to our royal person, and other marks of our favour. Given at our palace, at Belfaborac, the twelfth day of the ninety-first moon of our reign. I swore and subscribed to these articles, with great cheerfulness and content, although some of them were not so honourable as I could have wished, which proceeded wholly from the malice of Skyrish Bogolam, the High Admiral. Whereupon my chains were immediately unlocked, and I was at full liberty. The Emperor himself, in person, did me the honour to be by at the whole ceremony. I made my acknowledgments by prostrating myself at His Majesty's feet, but he commanded me to rise, and after many gracious expressions, which, to avoid the censure of vanity, I shall not repeat, he added, that he hoped I should prove a useful servant, and well deserve all the favours he had already conferred upon me, or might do for the future. The reader may please observe, that, in the last article of the recovery of my liberty, the Emperor stipulates to allow me a quantity of meat and drink, sufficient for the support of one thousand seven hundred twenty-four Lilliputians. Some time after, asking a friend at court how they came to fix on that determined number, he told me that His Majesty's mathematicians, having taken the height of my body by the help of a quadrant, and finding it to exceed theirs in the proportion of twelve to one, they concluded from the similarity of their bodies that mine must contain at least one thousand seven hundred twenty-four of theirs and consequently would require as much food as was necessary to support that number of Lilliputians, by which the reader may conceive an idea of the ingenuity of that people, as well as the prudent and exact economy of so great a prince. End of chapter 3, part 1
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Part One: A Voyage to Lilliput. Chapter Four. Mildendo, the metropolis of Lilliput, described, together with the Emperor's palace. A conversation between the author and a principal secretary, concerning the affairs of that empire. The author's offers to serve the emperor in his wars. The first request I made, after I had obtained my liberty, was, that I might have license to see Mildendo, the metropolis, which the emperor easily granted me, but with a special charge to do no hurt either to the inhabitants or their houses. The people had notice, by proclamation, of my design to visit the town. The wall which encompassed it is two feet and a half high, and at least eleven inches broad, so that a coach and horses may be driven very safely round it, and it is flanked with strong towers at ten feet distance. I stepped over the great western gate, and passed very gently and sidling through the two principal streets, only in my short waistcoat, for fear of damaging the roofs and eaves of the houses with the skirts of my coat. I walked with the utmost circumspection, to avoid treading on any stragglers who might remain in the streets, although the orders were very strict, that all people should keep in their houses, at their own peril. The garret windows and tops of houses were so crowded with spectators, that I thought in all my travels I had not seen a more populous place. The city is an exact square, each side of the wall being five hundred feet long. The two great streets, which run across and divide it into four quarters, are five feet wide. The lanes and alleys, which I could not enter, but only view them as I passed, are from twelve to eighteen inches. The town is capable of holding five hundred thousand souls. The houses are from three to five stories, the shops and markets well provided. The emperor's palace is in the centre of the city, where the two great streets meet. It is enclosed by a wall of two feet high, and twenty feet distance from the buildings. I had his majesty's permission to step over this wall, and, the space being so wide between that and the palace, I could easily view it on every side. The outward court is a square of forty feet, and includes two other courts. In the innermost are the royal apartments, which I was very desirous to see, but found it extremely difficult, for the great gates, from one square into another, were but eighteen inches high, and seven inches wide. Now the buildings of the outer court were at least five feet high, and it was impossible for me to stride over them, without infinite damage to the pile, though the walls were strongly built of hewn stone, and four inches thick. At the same time the emperor had a great desire, that I should see the magnificence of his palace. But this I was not able to do, till three days after, which I spent in cutting down with my knife some of the largest trees in the royal park, about a hundred yards distant from the city. Of these trees I made two stools, each about three feet high, and strong enough to bear my weight. The people having received notice a second time, I went again through the city to the palace, with my two stools in my hands. When I came to the side of the outer court, I stood upon one stool, and took the other in my hand. 
This I lifted over the roof, and gently set it down on the space between the first and second court, which was eight feet wide. I then stepped over the building, very conveniently, from one stall to the other, and drew up the first after me with a hooked stick. By this contrivance I got to the innermost court, and lying down upon my side, I applied my face to the window of the middle stories, which were left open on purpose, and discovered the most splendid apartments that can be imagined. There I saw the empress and the young princes, in their several lodgings, with their chief attendants about them. Her imperial majesty was pleased to smile very graciously upon me, and gave me out of the window her hand to kiss. But I shall not anticipate the reader with further descriptions of this kind, because I reserve them for a greater work, which is now almost ready for the press, containing a general description of this empire, from its first erection, through a long series of princes, with a particular account of their wars and politics, laws, learning, and religion, their plants and animals, their peculiar manners and customs, with other matters very curious and useful. My chief design, at present, being only to relate such events and transactions as happened to the public, or to myself, during a residence of about nine months in that empire. One morning, about a fortnight after I had obtained my liberty, while Dressel, principal secretary, as they style him, for private affairs, came to my house attended only by one servant. He ordered his coach to wait at a distance, and desired I would give him an hour's audience, which I readily consented to, on account of his quality and personal merits, as well as of the many good offices he had done me during my solicitations at court. I offered to lie down, that he might the more conveniently reach my ear, but he chose rather to let me hold him in my hand during our conversation. He began with compliments on my liberty, said, he might pretend to some merit in it, but, however added, that if it had not been for the present situation of things at court, perhaps I might not have obtained it so soon, for, said he, as flourishing a condition as we may appear to be into foreigners, we labour under two mighty evils, a violent faction at home, and the danger of an invasion, by a most potent enemy from abroad. As to the first, you are to understand that for about seventy moons past there have been two struggling parties in this empire, under the names of Tramakason and Slamakason, from the high and low heels of their shoes, by which they distinguish themselves. It is alleged, indeed, that the high heels are most agreeable to our ancient constitution, but, however this be, his majesty has determined to make use of only low heels in the administration of the government, and all offices in the gift of the crown, as you cannot but observe, and particularly that his majesty's imperial heels are lower at least by a drawer than any of his court. Drawer is a measure about the fourteenth part of an inch. The animosities between these two parties run so high, that they will neither eat, nor drink, nor talk with each other. We compute the Tremecason, or high heels, to exceed us in number, but the power is wholly on our side. We apprehend his imperial highness, the heir to the crown, to have some tendency towards the high heels. At least we can plainly discover that one of his heels is higher than the other, which gives him a hobble in his gait. Now, in the midst of these intense disquiets, we are threatened with an invasion from the island of Blefuscu, which is the other great empire of the universe almost as large and powerful as that of his majesty. 
for as to what we have heard you affirm, that there are other kingdoms and states in the world inhabited by human creatures as large as yourself, our philosophers are in much doubt, and would rather conjecture that you dropped from the moon, or one of the stars, because it is certain that a hundred mortals of your bulk would in a short time destroy all the fruits and cattle of his majesty's dominions. Besides, our histories of six thousand moons make no mention of any other regions than the two great empires of Lilliput and Blefusca, which two mighty powers have, as I was going to tell you, been engaged in a most obstinate war for six and thirty moons past. It began upon the following occasion. It is allowed on all hands that the primitive way of breaking eggs, before we eat them, was upon the larger end. But his present majesty's grandfather, while he was a boy, going to eat an egg, and breaking it according to the ancient practice, happened to cut one of his fingers. Whereupon the emperor, his father, published an edict, commanding all his subjects, upon great penalties, to break the smaller end of their eggs. The people so highly resented this law, that our histories tell us there have been six rebellions raised on that account, wherein one emperor lost his life, and another his crown. These civil commotions were constantly fermented by the monarchs of Blefuscu, and when they were quelled, the exiles always fled for refuge to that empire. It is computed that eleven thousand persons have at several times suffered death, rather than submit to break their eggs at the smaller end. Many hundred large volumes have been published upon this controversy, but the books of the big Indians have been long forbidden, and the whole party rendered incapable by law of holding employments. During the course of these troubles the emperors of Blefuscu did frequently expostulate by their ambassadors, accusing us of making a schism in religion, by offending against a fundamental doctrine of our great prophet Lustrog, in the fifty-fourth chapter of the Blunderkral, which is their Al-Koran. This, however, is thought to be a mere strain upon the text, for the words are these, that all true believers break their eggs at the convenient end. And which is the convenient end? Seems, in my humble opinion, to be left to every man's conscience, or at least in the power of the chief magistrate to determine. Now, the Bingandian exiles have found so much credit in the Emperor of Blefuscu's court, and so much private assistance and encouragement from their party here at home, that a bloody war has been carried on between the two empires for six and thirty moons, with various success. During which time we have lost forty capital ships, and a much greater number of smaller vessels, together with thirty thousand of our best seamen and soldiers. And the damage received by the enemy is reckoned to be somewhat greater than ours. However, they have now equipped a numerous fleet, and are just preparing to make a descent upon us and his imperial majesty, placing great confidence in your valour and strength, has commanded me to lay this account of his affairs before you. I desired the secretary to present my humble duty to the emperor, and to let him know that I thought it would not become me, who was a foreigner, to interfere with parties, but I was ready, with the hazard of my life, to defend his person and state against all invaders. End of chapter 4, part 1
Recording by Lizzie Driver. Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Part One: A Voyage to Lilliput. Chapter Five. The author, by an extraordinary stratagem, prevents an invasion. A high title of honour is conferred upon him. Ambassadors arrive from the Emperor of Blefuscu and sue for peace. The Empress's apartment on fire by an accident. The author instrumental in saving the rest of the palace. The Empire of Blefuscu is an island situated to the northeast of Lilliput, from which it is parted only by a channel of eight hundred yards wide. I had not yet seen it, and upon this notice of an intended invasion, I avoided appearing on that side of the coast for fear of being discovered by some of the enemy's ships, who had received no intelligence of me. All intercourse between the two empires, having been strictly forbidden during the war, upon pain of death, and an embargo laid by our emperor upon all vessels whatsoever, I communicated to his majesty a project I had formed, of seizing the enemy's whole fleet, which, as our scouts assured us, lay at anchor in the harbour, ready to sail with the first fair wind. I consulted the most experienced seamen upon the depth of the channel, which they had often plumbed, who told me that in the middle, at high water, it was seventy glumgluffs deep, which is about six feet of European measure, and the rest of it fifty glumgluffs at most. I walked towards the north-east coast over against Blefuscu, where, lying down behind a hillock, I took out my small perspective-glass and viewed the enemy's fleet at anchor consisting of about fifty men of war and a great number of transports. I then came back to my house, and gave orders, for which I had a warrant, for a great quantity of the strongest cable and bars of iron. The cable was about as thick as pack-thread, and the bars of the length and size of a knitting-needle. I trebled the cable to make it stronger, and for the same reason I twisted three of the iron bars together, bending the extremities into a hook. Having thus fixed fifty hooks to as many cables, I went back to the north-east coast, and putting off my coat, shoes, and stockings, walked into the sea in my leather jerkin, about half an hour before high water. I waded with what haste I could, and swam in the middle about thirty yards, till I felt ground. I arrived at the fleet in less than half an hour. The enemy was so frightened when they saw me, that they leaped out of their ships, and swam to shore where there could not be fewer than thirty thousand souls. I then took my tackling, and fastening a hook to the hole at the prow of each, I tied all the cords together at the end. While I was thus employed, the enemy discharged several thousand arrows, many of which stuck in my hands and face, and beside the excessive smart, gave me much disturbance in my work. My greatest apprehension was for mine eyes, which I should have infallibly lost, if I had not suddenly thought of an expedient. I kept, among my other little necessities, a pair of spectacles in a private pocket, which, as I observed before, had escaped the Emperor's searchers. These I took out, and fastened as strongly as I could upon my nose, and thus armed went on boldly with my work, in spite of the enemy's arrows, many of which struck against the glasses of my spectacles, but without any other effect, further than a little to decompose them. I had now fastened all the hooks and taking the knot in my hand, began to pull. But not a ship would stir, for they were all too fast held by their anchors, so that the boldest part of my enterprise remained. I therefore let go of the cord, and leaving the hooks fixed to the ships, I resolutely cut with my knife the cables that fastened the anchors, 
receiving about two hundred shots in my face and hands. Then I took up the knotted end of the cables, to which my hooks were tied, and with great ease drew fifty of the enemy's largest men of war after me. The Blefuscudians, who had not the least imagination of what I intended, were at first confounded with astonishment. They had seen me cut the cables, and thought my design was only to let the ships run adrift, or fall foul of each other. But when they perceived the whole fleet moving in order, and saw me pulling at the end, they set up such a scream of grief and despair, as it is almost impossible to describe or conceive. When I had got out of danger, I stopped a while to pick out the arrows that had stuck in my hands and face, and rubbed on some of the same ointment that was given me at my first arrival, as I have formerly mentioned. I then took off my spectacles, and waiting about an hour, till the tide was a little fallen, I waded through the middle with my cargo, and arrived safe at the royal port of Lilliput. The emperor and his whole court stood on the shore, expecting the issue of this great adventure. They saw the ships move forward in a large half-moon, but could not discern me, who was up to my breast in water. When I advanced to the middle of the channel, they were yet in more pain, because I was under water to my neck. The emperor concluded me to be drowned, and that the enemy's fleet was approaching in a hostile manner. But he was soon eased of his fears, for the channel, growing shallower every step I made, I came in a short time within hearing, and holding up the end of the cable by which the fleet was fastened, I cried out in a loud voice, Long live the most puissant king of Lilliput! This great prince received me at my landing with all possible encomiums, and created me a nardic upon the spot, which is the highest title of honour among them. His majesty desired I would take some other opportunity of bringing all the rest of his enemy's ships into his ports. And so unmeasurable is the ambition of princes, that he seemed to think of nothing less than reducing the whole empire of Blefiscu into a province, and governing it, by a viceroy, of destroying the big Endian exiles, and compelling that people to break the smaller end of their eggs, by which he would remain the sole monarch of the whole world. But I endeavoured to divert him from the design, by many arguments drawn from the topics of policy as well as justice. And I plainly protested, that I would never be an instrument of bringing a free and brave people into slavery. And, when the matter was debated in council, the wisest part of the ministry were of my opinion. This open, bold declaration of mine was so opposite to the schemes and politics of his imperial majesty, that he could never forgive me. He mentioned it in a very artful manner at council, where I was told that some of the wisest appeared, at least by their silence, to be of my opinion. But others, who were my secret enemies, could not forbear some expressions, which, by a side-wind, reflected on me. And from this time began an intrigue between his majesty, and a junto of ministers maliciously bent against me, which broke out in less than two months, and had liked to have ended in my utter destruction. Of so little weight are the greatest services to princes, when put into the balance with a refusal to gratify their passions. About three weeks after this exploit, there arrived a solemn embassy from Blefuscu, with humble offers of peace, which was soon concluded, upon conditions very advantageous to our emperor, wherewith I shall not trouble the reader. There were six ambassadors, with a train of about five hundred persons, and their entry was very magnificent, suitable to the grandeur of their master, and the importance of their business. When their treaty was finished, wherein I did them several good offices by the credit I now had, 
or at least appeared to have, at court, their excellencies, who were privately told how much I had been their friend, made me a visit in form. They began with many compliments upon my valour and generosity, invited me to that kingdom in the emperor their master's name, and desired me to show them some proofs of my prodigious strength, of which they had heard so many wonders, wherein I readily obliged them, but shall not trouble the reader with the particulars. When I had for some time entertained their excellencies, to their infinite satisfaction and surprise, I desired they would do me the honour to present my most humble respects to the emperor their master, the renown of whose virtues has so justly filled the whole world with admiration, and whose royal person I resolved to attend, before I returned to my own country. Accordingly, the next time I had the honour to see our emperor, I desired his general licence to wait on the Blefuscudian monarch, which he was pleased to grant me, as I could perceive, in a very cold manner, but could not guess the reason, till I had a whisper from a certain person, that Filmnap and Bogolam had represented my intercourse with those ambassadors as a mark of disaffection, from which I am sure my heart was wholly free, and this was the first time I began to conceive some imperfect idea of courts and ministers. It is to be observed that these ambassadors spoke to me by an interpreter, the languages of both empires differing as much from each other as any two in Europe, and each nation priding itself upon the antiquity, beauty, and energy of their own tongue, with an avowed contempt for that of their neighbour. Yet our emperor, standing upon the advantage he had gotten by the seizure of their fleet, obliged them to deliver their credentials and make their speech in the Lilliputian tongue. And it must be confessed, that from the great intercourse of trade and commerce between both realms, from the continual reception of exiles, which is mutual among them, and from the custom in each empire, to send their young nobility and richer gentry to the other, in order to polish themselves by seeing the world and understanding men and manners. There are few persons of distinction, or merchants, or seamen who dwell in the maritime parts, but what can hold conversation in both tongues, as I found some weeks after, when I went to pay my respects to the Emperor of Blefuscu, which, in the midst of great misfortunes, through the malice of my enemies, proved a very happy adventure to me, as I shall relate in its proper place. The reader may remember that when I signed these articles upon which I recovered my liberty, there were some which I had disliked, upon account of their being too servile. Neither could anything but an extreme necessity have forced me to submit. But being now a Nardek of the highest rank in that empire, such offices were looked upon as below my dignity, and the Emperor, to do him justice, never once mentioned them to me. However, it was not long before I had opportunity of doing His Majesty, at least as I then thought, a most signal service. I was alarmed at midnight with the cries of many hundred people at my door, by which, being suddenly awaked, I was in some kind of terror. I heard the word burglum repeated incessantly. Several of the Emperor's court, making their way through the crowd, entreated me to come immediately to the palace where her imperial majesty's apartment was on fire, by the carelessness of a maid of honour, who fell asleep while she was reading a romance. I got up in an instant, and orders being given to clear the way before me, and it being likewise a moonshine night, I made a shift to get to the palace without trampling on any of the people. I found they had already applied ladders to the walls of the apartment, and were well provided with buckets, but the water was at some distance. These buckets were about the size of large thimbles, 
and the poor people supplied me with them as fast as they could, but the flames were so violent that they did little good. I might easily have stifled it with my coat, which I had unfortunately left behind me for haste, and came away only in my leather jerkin. The case seemed wholly desperate and deplorable, and this magnificent palace would have been infallibly burnt down to the ground, if, by a presence of mind unusual to me, I had not suddenly thought of an expedient. I had, the evening before, drunk plentifully of a most delicious wine, called Glimigrim. The Blesfuskdians call it Flunneck, but ours is esteemed the better sort, which is very diuretic. By the luckiest chance in the world I had not discharged myself of any part of it, which I avoided in such a quantity, and applied so well to the proper places, that in three minutes the fire was wholly extinguished, and the rest of that noble pile, which had cost so many ages in erecting, preserved from destruction. It was now daylight, and I returned to my house without waiting to congratulate with the Emperor, because, although I had done a very eminent piece of service, yet I could not tell how His Majesty might resent the manner by which I had performed it. For, by the fundamental laws of the realm, it is capital in any person, of what quality soever, to make water within the precincts of the palace. But I was a little comforted by a message from His Majesty, that he would give orders to the Grand Justiciary for passing my pardon in form, which, however, I could not obtain, and I was privately assured, that the Empress, conceiving the greatest abhorrence of what I had done, removed to the most distant side of the court, firmly resolved that those buildings should never be repaired for her use, and in the presence of her chief confidence could not forbear vowing revenge. End of chapter 5, part 1Part One, Chapter Six of Gulliver's Travels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Part One: A Voyage to Lilliput, Chapter Six. Of the inhabitants of Lilliput, their learning, laws, and customs the manner of educating their children, the author's way of living in that country, his vindiction of a great lady. Although I intend to leave the description of this empire to a particular treatise, yet, in the meantime, I am content to gratify the curious reader with some general ideas. As the common size of the natives is somewhat under six inches high, so there is an exact proportion in all other animals, as well as plants and trees. For instance, the tallest horse and oxen are between four and five inches in height, the sheep an inch and a half, more or less, their geese about the bigness of a sparrow, and so the several gradations downwards, till you come to the smallest, which to my sight were almost invisible. But nature has adapted the eyes of the Lilliputians to all objects proper for their view. They see with great exactness, but at no great distance and, to show the sharpness of their sight towards objects that are near, I have been much pleased with observing a cook pulling a lark, which was not so large as a common fly, and a young girl threading an invisible needle with invisible silk. Their tallest trees are about seven feet high. I mean some of those in the great royal park, the tops whereof I could but just reach with my fist clenched. The other vegetables are in the same proportion, 
but this I leave to the reader's imagination. I shall say but little at present of their learning, which for many ages has flourished in all its branches among them, but their manner of writing is very peculiar, being neither from the left to the right like the Europeans, nor from the right to the left like the Arabians, nor from up to down like the Chinese, but a slant from one corner of the paper to the other, like ladies in England. They bury their dead with their heads directly downward, because they hold an opinion that in eleven thousand moons they are all to rise again, in which period the earth, which they conceive to be flat, will turn upside down, and by this means they shall, at their resurrection, be found ready standing on their feet. The learned among them confess the absurdity of this doctrine, but the practice still continues, in compliance to the vulgar. There are some laws and customs in this empire very peculiar, and if they were not so directly contrary to those of my own dear country, I should be tempted to say a little in their justification. It is only to be wished they were as well executed. The first I shall mention relates to informers. All crimes against the state are punished here with the utmost severity, but if the person accused makes his innocent plainly to appear upon his trial, the accuser is immediately put to an ignominious death, and out of his goods or lands, the innocent person is quadruply recompensed for the loss of his time, for the danger he underwent, for the hardship of his imprisonment, and for all the charges he had been at in making his defence. Or, if that fund be deficient, it is largely supplied by the crown. The emperor also confers on him some public mark of his favour, and proclamation is made of his innocence, through the whole city. They look upon fraud as a greater crime than theft, and therefore seldom fail to punish it with death, for they allege that care and vigilance, with a very common understanding, may preserve a man's goods from thieves. But honesty has no defence against superior cunning. And, since it is necessary that there should be a perpetual intercourse of buying and selling, and dealing upon credit, where fraud is permitted and connived at, or has no law to punish it, the honest dealer is always undone, and the knave gets the advantage. I remember when I was once interceding with the emperor for a criminal who had wronged his master of a great sum of money, which he had received by order and ran away with, and happening to tell his majesty, by way of extenuation, that it was only a breach of trust, the emperor thought it monstrous in me to offer as a defence the greatest aggravation of the crime, and truly I had little to say in return, farther than the common answer, that different nations had different customs. For, I confess, I was heartily ashamed. Although we usually call reward and punishment the two hinges upon which all government turns, yet I could never observe this maxim to be put in practice by any nation except that of Lilliput. Whoever can there bring sufficient proof that he has strictly observed the laws of his country for seventy-three moons, has a claim to certain privileges, according to his quality or condition of life, with a proportional sum of money out of a fund appropriated for that use. He likewise acquires the title of Snilpal, or legal, which is added to his name, but does not descend to his posterity. And these people thought it a prodigious defect of policy among us, when I told them that our laws were enforced only by penalties, without any mention of reward. It is upon this account that the image of justice, in their courts of judicature, is formed with six eyes, two before, as many behind, and on each side one, to signify circumspection. 
with a bag of gold open in her right hand, and a sword sheathed in her left, to show she is more disposed to reward than to punish. In choosing persons for all employments, they have more regard to good morals than to great abilities. For, since government is necessary to mankind, they believe that the common size of human understanding is fitted to some station or other, and that providence never intended to make the management of public affairs a mystery, to be comprehended only by a few persons of sublime genius, of which there are seldom a three born in an age. But they suppose truth, justice, temperance, and the like, to be in every man's power. The practice of which virtues, assisted by experience and a good intention, would qualify any man for the service of his country, except where a course of study is required. But they thought the want of moral virtues was so far from being supplied by superior endowments of the mind, that employments could never be put into such dangerous hands as those of persons so qualified, and, at least, that the mistakes committed by ignorance, in a virtuous disposition, would never be of such fatal consequence to the public weal, as the practices of a man, whose inclinations led him to be corrupt, and who had great abilities to manage, to multiply, and defend his corruptions. In like manner, the disbelief of a divine providence renders a man incapable of holding any public station. For, since kings avow themselves to be the deputies of providence, the Lilliputians think nothing can be more absurd than for a prince to employ such men as disown their authority, under which he acts. In relating these and the following laws, I would only be understood to mean the original institutions, and not the most scandalous corruptions, into which these people are fallen, by the degenerate nature of man. For, as to that infamous practice of acquiring great employments by dancing on the ropes, or badges of favour and distinction by leaping over sticks and creeping under them, the reader is to observe that they were first introduced by the grandfather of the emperor now reigning, and grew to the present height by the gradual increase of party and faction. Ingratitude is, among them, a capital crime, as we read it to have been in some other countries. For they reason thus, that whoever makes ill returns to his benefactor, must needs be a common enemy to the rest of mankind, from whom he has received no obligation, and therefore such a man is not fit to live. Their notions relating to the duties of parents and children differ extremely from ours. For, since the conjunction of male and female is founded upon the great law of nature, in order to propagate and continue the species, the Lilliputians will needs have it, that men and women are joined together, like other animals, by the motives of concupiscence, and that their tenderness towards their young proceeds from the like nature principle, for which reason they will never allow that a child is under any obligation to his father for begetting him, or to his mother for bringing him into the world, which, considering the miseries of human life, was neither a benefit in himself, nor intended so by his parents, whose thoughts, in their love encounters, were otherwise employed. Upon these, and the like reasonings, their opinion is, that parents are the last of all others to be trusted with the education of their own children, and therefore they have in every town public nurseries, where all parents, except cottagers and labourers, are obliged to send their infants of both sexes to be reared and educated, when they come to the age of twenty moons, at which time they are supposed to have some rudiments of docility. These schools are of several kinds, suited to different qualities, and both sexes. They have certain professors well skilled in preparing children for such a condition of life as befits the rank of their parents, 
and their own capacities, as well as inclinations. I shall first say something of the male nurseries, and then of the female. The nurseries for males of noble or eminent birth are provided with grave and learned professors, and their several deputies. The clothes and food of the children are plain and simple. They are bred up in the principles of honour, justice, courage, modesty, clemency, religion, and love of their country. They are always employed in some business, except in the times of eating and sleeping, which are very short, and two hours for diversions consisting of bodily exercises. They are dressed by men till four years of age, and then are obliged to dress themselves, although their quality be ever so great, and the woman attendant, who are aged proportionally to ours at fifty, perform only the most menial offices. They are never suffered to converse with servants, but go together in smaller or greater numbers to take their diversions, and always in the presence of a professor or one of his deputies, whereby they avoid these early bad impressions of folly and vice, to which our children are subject. Their parents are suffered to see them only twice a year. The visit is to last but an hour. They are allowed to kiss the child at meeting and parting, but a professor, who always stands by on those occasions, will not suffer them to whisper, or use any fondling expressions, or bring any presents of toys, sweetmeats, and the like. The pension from each family for the education and entertainment of a child, upon failure of due payment, is levied by the emperor's officers. The nurseries for children of ordinary gentlemen, merchants, traders, and handicrafts, are managed proportionally after the same manner. Only those designed for trades are put out apprentices at eleven years old, whereas those of persons of quality continue in their exercises till fifteen, which answers to twenty-one with us, but the confinement is gradually lessened for the last three years. In the female nurseries the young girls of quality are educated much like the males, only they are dressed by orderly servants of their own sex, but always in the presence of a professor or deputy till they come to dress themselves, which is at five years old. And if it be found that the nurses ever presume to entertain the girls with frightful or foolish stories, or the common follies practised by chambermaids among us, they are publicly whipped thrice about the city, imprisoned for a year, and banished for life to the most desolate part of the country. Thus the young ladies are as much ashamed of being cowards and fools as the men, and despise all personal ornaments beyond decency and cleanliness. Neither did I perceive any difference in their education made by their difference of sex, only that the exercises of the females were not altogether so robust, and that some rules were given them relating to domestic life, and a smaller compass of learning was enjoined them. For their maxim is that among peoples of quality, a wife should always be a reasonable and agreeable companion, because she cannot always be young. When the girls are twelve years old, which, among them, is the marriageable age, their parents or guardians take them home, with great expressions of gratitude to the professors, and seldom without tears of the young lady and her companions. In the nurseries of females of the meaner sort, the children are instructed in all kinds of works proper for their sex, and their several degrees. Those intended for apprentices are dismissed at seven years old. The rest are kept till eleven. The meaner families who have children at these nurseries are obliged, besides their annual pension, which is as low as possible, to return to the steward of the nursery a small monthly share of their gettings, to be a portion for the child, and therefore all parents are limited in their expenses by the law. 
for the Lilliputians think nothing could be more unjust than for people, in subservience to their own appetites, to bring children into the world, and leave the burden of supporting them on the public. As to persons of quality, they give security to appropriate a certain sum for each child, suitable to their condition, and these funds are always managed with good husbandry and the most exact justice. The cottagers and labourers keep their children at home, their business being only to till and cultivate the earth, and therefore their education is of little consequence to the public. But the old and diseased among them are supported by hospitals, for begging is a trade unknown in this empire. And here it may, perhaps, divert the curious reader to give some account of my domestics, and my manner of living in this country, during a residence of nine months and thirteen days. Having a head mechanically turned, and being likewise forced by necessity, I had made for myself a table and chair, convenient enough, out of the largest trees in the royal park. Two hundred seamstresses were employed to make me shirts, and linen for my bed and table, all of the strongest and coarsest kind they could get, which, however, they were forced to quilt together in several folds, for the thickest was some degrees finer than lawn. Their linen is usually three inches wide, and three feet make a piece. The seamstresses took my measure as I lay on the ground, one standing at my neck, and another at my mid-leg, with a strong cord extended, that each held by the end, while a third measured the length of the cord with a rule of an inch long. Then they measured my right thumb, and desired no more, for, by a mathematical computation, that twice round the thumb is once round the wrist, and so on to the neck and the waist, and by the help of my old shirt, which I displayed on the ground before them for a pattern, they fitted me exactly. Three hundred tailors were employed in the same manner, to make me clothes, but they had another contrivance for taking my measure. I kneeled down, and they raised a ladder from the ground to my neck. Upon this ladder one of them mounted, and let fall a plumb-line from my collar to the floor, which just answered the length of my coat. But my waist and arms I measured myself. When my clothes were finished, which was done in my house, for the largest of theirs would not have been able to hold them, they looked like the patchwork made by the ladies in England, only that mine were all of a colour. I had three hundred cooks to dress my victuals, in little convenient huts built about my house, where they and their families lived, and prepared me two dishes apiece. I took up twenty waiters in my hand, and placed them on the table, a hundred more attended below on the ground, some with dishes of meat, and some with barrels of wine, and other liqueurs slung on their shoulders, all which the waiters above drew up, as I wanted, in a very ingenious manner, by certain cords, as we draw the bucket up a well in Europe. A dish of their meat was a good mouthful, and a barrel of their liqueur a reasonable draught. Their mutton yielded to ours, but their beef is excellent. I have had a sirloin so large that I have been forced to make three bites of it, but this is rare. My servants were astonished to see me eat it, bones and all, as in our country we do the leg of a lark. Their geese and turkeys are usually ate at a mouthful, and I confess they far exceeded ours. Of their smaller fowl I could take up twenty or thirty at the end of my knife. One day his imperial majesty, being informed of my way of living, desired that himself and his royal consort with the young princes of the blood, of both sexes, might have the happiness, as he was pleased to call it, of dining with me. They came accordingly, and I placed them in chairs of state upon my table, just over against me, with their guards about them. 
Philnap, the Lord High Treasurer, attended there likewise with his white staff, and I observed he often looked on me with a sour countenance, which I would not seem to regard, but ate more than usual, in honour to my dear country, as well as to fill the court with admiration. I have some private reasons to believe that this visit from his majesty gave Philnap an opportunity of doing me ill offices to his master. That minister had always been my secret enemy, though he outwardly caressed me more than was usual to the moroseness of his nature. He represented to the emperor the low condition of his treasury, that he was forced to make up money at a great discount, that exchequer bills would not circulate under nine per cent below par, that I had cost his majesty above a million and a half of sprogs, their greatest gold coin, about the bigness of a spangle, and upon the whole that it would be advisable in the emperor to take the first fair occasion of dismissing me. I am here obliged to vindicate the reputation of an excellent lady, who was an innocent sufferer upon my account. The treasurer took a fancy to be jealous of his wife, from the malice of some evil tongues, who informed him that her grace had taken a violent affection for my person, and the court scandal ran for some time, that she was once come privately to my lodging. This I solemnly declared to be a most infamous falsehood, without any grounds, further than that her grace was pleased to treat me with all innocent marks of freedom and friendship. I own she came often to my house, but always publicly, not ever without three more in the coach, who were usually her sister and young daughter, and some particular acquaintance. But this was common to many other ladies of the court, and I still appealed to my servants round, whether they at any time saw a coach at my door, without knowing what persons were in it. On those occasions, when a servant had given me my notice, my custom was to go immediately to the door, and, after paying my respects, to take up the coach and two horses very carefully in my hands, for, if there were six horses, the postillion always unharnessed four, and placed them on a table, where I had fixed a movable rim quite round, of five inches high, to prevent accidents, and I often have four coaches and horses at once on my table, full of company, while I sat in my chair, leaning my face towards them. When I was engaged with one set, the coachman would gently drive the others round my table. I have passed many an afternoon very agreeably in these conversations, but I defy the treasurer, or his two informers, I will name them, and let them make the best of it, Clustril and Drunlow, to prove that any person ever came to me incognito, except the secretary Veldressel, who was sent by express command of his imperial majesty, as I have before related. I should not have dwelt so long upon this particular, if it had not been a point wherein the reputation of a great lady is so nearly concerned, to say nothing of my own. Though I then had the honour to be a Nardac, which the treasurer himself is not, for all the world knows that he is only a glum-glum, a title inferior by one degree, as that of a marquis is to a duke in England. Yet I allow he preceded me in right of his post. These false informations, which I afterwards came to the knowledge of by an accident not proper to mention, made the treasurer show his lady for some time an ill countenance, and me a worse. And, although he was at last undeceived and reconciled to her, yet I lost all credit with him, and found my interest decline very fast with the emperor himself, who was indeed too much governed by that favourite. End of chapter 6, part 1
Part One, Chapter Seven of Gulliver's Travels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Part One: A Voyage to Lilliput, Chapter Seven. The author, being informed of a design to accuse him of high treason, makes his escape to Blefuscu, his reception there. Before I proceed to give an account of my leaving this kingdom, it may be proper to inform the reader of a private intrigue which had been for two months forming against me. I had been hitherto, all my life, a stranger to courts, for which I was unqualified by the meanness of my condition. I had indeed heard and read enough of the dispositions of great princes and ministers, but never expected to have found such terrible effects of them in so remote a country, governed, as I thought, by very different maxims from those in Europe. When I was just preparing to pay my attendance on the Emperor of Blefuscu, a considerable person at court, to whom I had been very serviceable at a time when he lay under the highest displeasure of his imperial majesty, came to my house very privately at night, in a close chair, and, without sending his name, desired admittance. The chairman was dismissed. I put the chair, with his lordship in it, into my coat-pocket, and, giving orders to a trusty servant, to say I was indisposed and gone to sleep, I fastened the door of my house, placed the chair on the table, according to my usual custom, and sat down by it. After the common salutations were over, Observing his lordship's countenance full of concern, and inquiring into the reason, he desired, I would hear him with all patience, in a manner that highly concerned my honour and my life. His speech was to the following effect, for I took notes of it as soon as he left me. You ought to know, said he, that several committees of council have been lately called, in the most private manner, on your account, and it is but two days since his majesty came to a full resolution. "'You are very sensible that Skyrish Bogolom, "'Galbet, or High Admiral, "'has been your mortal enemy almost ever since your arrival. "'His original reasons I know not, "'but his hatred has increased since your great success against Blefuscu, "'by which his glory as Admiral is much obscured. "'This lord, in conjunction with Philnap the High Treasurer, "'whose enmity against you is notorious on account of his lady, "'Lemtog the General, Lack on the Chamberlain, and Balmoff the Grand Justiciary, have prepared articles of impeachment against you for treason and other capital crimes. This preface made me so impatient, being conscious of my own merits and innocent, that I was going to interrupt him, when he entreated me to be silent, and thus proceeded. Out of the gratitude for the favours you have done me, I procured information of the whole proceedings, and a copy of the articles, wherein I venture my head for your service. Articles of Impeachment against Quinbullis Flesterin, the Man Mountain. Article One. Whereas by a statute made in the reign of his Imperial Majesty, Calin de Far Plun, it is enacted that whoever shall make water within the precincts of the royal palace shall be liable to the pains and penalties of high treason. Notwithstanding, the said Quinbus Flesterin, in open breach of the said law, under colour of extinguishing the fire kindled in the apartment of his majesty's most dear imperial consort, did maliciously, treacherously, and devilishly, by discharge of his urine, put out the said fire kindled in the said apartment, lying and being within the precincts of the said royal palace, 
against the statute in that case provided, etc., against the duty, etc. Article 2. That the said Quinbus Flesterin, having brought the imperial fleet of Blefuscu into the royal port, and being afterwards commanded by his imperial majesty to seize all the other ships of the said empire of Blefuscu, and reduce that empire to a province, to be governed by a viceroy from hence, and to destroy and put to death not only all the Burgundian exiles, but likewise all the people of that empire, who would not immediately forsake the Burgundian heresy. He, the said Flestrian, like a false traitor against his most auspicious, serene, imperial majesty, did petition to be excused from the said service, upon pretence of the unwillingness to force the consciences, or destroy the liberties and lives of an innocent people. Article 3. That, whereas certain ambassadors arrived from the court of Blefuscu to sue for peace in his majesty's court, he, the said Flesterin, did, like a false traitor, aid, abet, comfort, and divert the said ambassadors, although he knew them to be servants to a prince who was lately an open enemy to his imperial majesty, and in an open war against his said imperial majesty. Article 4. That the said Quinbus Flesterin, contrary to the duty of a faithful subject, is now preparing to make a voyage to the court and empire of Blefuscu, for which he has received only verbal license from his imperial majesty, and, under colour of the said license, does falsely and treacherously intend to take the said voyage, and thereby to aid, comfort, and abet the emperor of Blefuscu, so lately an enemy, and in open war with his imperial majesty, as foresaid. There are some other articles, but these are the most important, of which I have read you an abstract. In the several debates upon this impeachment, it must be confessed that his majesty gave many marks of his great lenity, often urging the services you had done him, and endeavouring to extenuate your crimes. The treasurer and admiral insisted that you should be put to the most painful and ignominious death, by setting fire to your house at night, and the general was to attend with twenty thousand men, armed with poison arrows, to shoot you on the face and hands. Some of your servants were to have private orders to strew a poisonous juice on your shirts and sheets, which would soon make you tear your own flesh, and die in the utmost torture. The general came into the same opinion, so that for a long time there was a majority against you. But his majesty resolving, if possible, to spare your life, at last brought off the chamberlain. Upon this incident Veldressel, principal secretary for private affairs, who always approved himself your true friend, was commanded by the emperor to deliver his opinion, which he accordingly did, and therein justified the good thoughts you have of him. He allowed your crimes to be great, but that still there was room for mercy, the most commendable virtue in a prince, and for which his majesty was so justly celebrated. He said, the friendship between you and him was so well known to the world, that perhaps the most honourable board might think him partial. However, in obedience to the command he had received, he would freely offer his sentiments. That if his majesty, in consideration of your services, and pursuant to his own merciful disposition, would please to spare your life, and only give orders to put out both your eyes, he humbly conceived that this expedient, justice might in some measure be satisfied, and all the world would applaud the lenity of the emperor, as well as the fair and generous proceedings of those who have the honour to be his counsellors. That the loss of your eyes would be no impediment to your bodily strength, by which you might still be useful to his majesty, 
but blindness in addition to courage by concealing dangers from us that the fear you had for your eyes was the greatest difficulty in bringing over the enemy's fleet and it would be sufficient for you to see by the eyes of the ministers since the great princes do no more this proposal was received with the utmost disprobation by the whole board bogolom the admiral could not preserve his temper but rising up in fury said he wondered how the secretary durst presume to give his opinion for preserving the life of a traitor that the services you had performed were by all true reasons of state the great aggravation of your crimes that you who were able to extinguish the fire by discharge of urine in her majesty's department which he mentioned with horror might at another time raise an inundation by the same means to drown the whole palace and the same strength which enabled you to bring over the enemy's fleet might serve upon the first discontent to carry it back that he had good reasons to think you were a big Indian in your heart, and, as treason begins in the heart, before it appears in overt acts, so he accused you as a traitor on that account, and therefore insisted you should be put to death. The treasurer was of the same opinion. He showed to what straits his majesty's revenue was reduced by the charge of maintaining you, which would soon grow insupportable. That the secretary's expedient of putting out your eyes was so far from being a remedy against this evil that it would probably increase it as is manifest from the common practice of blinding some kind of fowls after which they feed the faster and grow sooner fat that his sacred majesty and the council who are your judges were in their own consciences fully conceived of your guilt which was a sufficient argument to condemn you to death without the formal proofs required by the strict letter of the law but his imperial majesty fully determined against capital punishment was graciously pleased to say that since the council thought the loss of your eyes too easy a censure some other way might be inflicted hereafter and your friend the secretary humbly desiring to be heard again in answer to what the treasurer had objected concerning the great charge his majesty was at in maintaining you said that his excellency who had the sole disposal of the emperor's revenue might easily provide against the evil by gradually lessening your establishment by which for want of sufficient for you would grow weak and faint and lose your appetite and consequently decay and consume in a few months neither would the stench of your carcass be then so dangerous when it should become more than half diminished and immediately upon your death five or six thousand of his majesty's subjects might in two or three days cut your flesh from your bones and take it away by cartloads and bury it in distant parts to prevent infection leaving the skeleton as a monument of admiration to prosperity thus by the great friendship of the secretary the whole affair was compromised it was strictly enjoined that the project of starving you by degrees should be kept a secret but the sentence of putting out your eyes was entered on the books none dissenting except boggle on the admiral who, being a creature of the Empress, was perpetually instigated by Her Majesty to insist upon your death, she having borne perpetual malice against you, on account of that infamous and illegal method you took to extinguish the fire in her apartment. In three days your friend the Secretary will be directed to come to your house and read before you the articles of impeachment, and then to signify the great lenity and favour of His Majesty and Council, whereby you are only condemned to the loss of your eyes 
which his majesty does not question you will gratefully and humbly submit to and twenty of his majesty's surgeons will attend in order to see the operation well performed by discharging very sharp pointed arrows into the balls of your eyes as you lie on the ground i leave you to your prudence what measures you will take and to avoid suspicion i must immediately return in as private a manner as i came his lordship did so and i remained alone under many doubts and perplexities of mind it was a custom introduced by this prince and his ministry very different as i have been assured from the practice of former times that after the court has decreed any cruel execution either to gratify the monarch's resentment or the malice of a favourite the emperor always makes a speech to his whole council expressing his great lenity and tenderness as qualities known and confessed by all the world this speech was immediately published throughout the kingdom nor did anything terrify the people so much as these encomiums on his majesty's mercy because it was observed that the more these praises were enlarged and insisted on the more inhuman was the punishment and the sufferer more innocent yet as to myself i must confess having never been designed for a courtier either by my birth or education i was so ill a judge of things that i could not discover the lenity and favour of this sentence but conceived it perhaps erroneously rather to be rigorous than gentle i sometimes thought of standing my trial for although i could not deny the facts alleged in several articles yet i hoped they would admit of some extenuation but having in my life pursued many state trials which i ever observed to terminate as the judges thought fit to direct i durst not rely on so dangerous a decision in so critical a juncture and against such powerful enemies once i was strongly bent upon resistance for while i had liberty the whole strength of that empire could hardly subdue me and i might easily with stones pelt the metropolis to pieces but i soon rejected that project with horror by remembering the oath i had made to the emperor the favours i had received from him and the high title of nardac he had conferred upon me neither had i so soon learned the gratitude of courtiers to persuade myself that his majesty's present seventies acquitted me of all past obligations at last i fixed upon a resolution for which it is probable i may incur some censure and not unjustly for i confess i owe the preserving of mine eyes and consequently my liberty to my own great rashness and want of experience because if i had then known the nature of princes and ministers which i have since observed in many other courts and their methods of treating criminals less obnoxious than myself i should with great alacrity and readiness have submitted to so easy a punishment but hurried on by the precipitancy of youth and having his imperial majesty's license to pay my attendance upon the emperor of blefuscu i took this opportunity before the three days were elapsed to send a letter to my friend the secretary signifying my resolution of setting out that morning for blefuscu pursuant to the leave i had got and without waiting for an answer i went to that side of the island where our fleet lay i seized a large man-of-war tied a cable to the prow and lifting up the anchors i stripped myself put my clothes together with my coverlet which i carried under my arm into the vessel and drawing it after me between wading and swimming arrived at the royal port of blefuscu where the people had long expected me 
they lent me two guides to direct me to the capital city, which is of the same name. I held them in my hands till I came within two hundred yards of the gate, and desired them to signify my arrival to one of the secretaries, and let him know I there waited his majesty's command. I had an answer in about an hour, that his majesty, attended by the royal family, and great officers of the court, was coming out to receive me. I advanced a hundred yards. The emperor and his train alighted from their horses, the empress and ladies from their coaches, and I did not perceive there in any fright or concern. I lay on the ground to kiss his majesty's and the empress's hands. I told his majesty that I was come according to my promise, and with the license of the emperor and my master, to have the honour of seeing so mighty a monarch, and to offer him any service in my power, consistent with my duty to my own prince. Not mentioning a word of my disgrace, because I had hitherto no regular information about it, and might suppose myself wholly ignorant of any such design. Neither could I reasonably conceive that the emperor would discover the secret, while I was out of his power, wherein, however, it soon appeared I was deceived. I shall not trouble the reader with the particular account of my reception at this court, which was suitable to the generosity of so great a prince, nor of the difficulties I was in for want of a house and bed, being forced to lie on the ground, wrapped in my coverlet. End of chapter 7, part 1